You're listening to the Philly Maker Fair podcast. My name is Laura Cheneau. And I am Valerie Chiquendo. And I'm Jeremy DePrisco. We're here celebrating the creators, builders, inventors, and artists that bring their visions to life at the Philly Maker Fair. This week, we're chatting with Cal Smith from Sus Music. Kel has been composing and recording under the name Sus Music. His recent output involves the use of electronic instruments that he designs and builds. Welcome, Kel. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So, Kel, tell us about Sus Music. Uh, when did you first start it and why did you start it? What's the story behind it? Oh, my. Uh, well, it, it, it really began um, the summer of 2015 um, when uh, I transferred, I, I converted my basement from a dirt floor um, rodent and insect infested um, wasteland into what I would hope would be a creative workspace. I didn't have any idea of what that was going to be. I just knew I wanted to build a space. Um, I was between gigs at the time. I had about three months to kill and I, I don't do well with sitting around free time. So I thought I'm going to make a space here. Um, and somewhere along the way, um, you know, I've, I've always been a maker of some form. I have an art school background. Um, I have a mind for science and a mind for technology and a mind for numbers. And I like the way that science and art sometimes intersects. Um, and I thought at first that I might make uh, like kind of an art studio, but as I began to progress, I had this, this idea that like maybe I would work in sound and maybe not so much making music, but just trying to explore that area because I've always been interested in that. Um, um, so, you know, I wish I could say I had a great, like a, a concept for it, but I really just started making things. I just started kind of, kind of developing these, these sound experiences. I won't even call it music yet. It was just, just almost like just tones, <laughs> right? These sort of minimalist tones. And I started posting them on SoundCloud um, and they got a, a bit of an audience, a bit of a reaction. And um, I was surprised and, and pleased by that. And I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Do a bit more of this. Um, and then I started getting involved with um, some global, uh, like a collective of, of other people who are doing what I did and people who are doing it a lot better, a lot more sophisticated. And I, you know, as over time goes, you know, you learn things as, you, as you're exposed to people who do what you do and do it well. Um, and I guess somewhere along the way, I became, a, you know, a, a composer, although I, I hesitate to call myself that because I'm not conservatory trained. Um, I've you know, learned instruments during my life, as most people do, but I, I never thought of myself as a quote-unquote musician or composer. Um, but I, I had really good feedback from folks that I respected who were composers, and I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a little something here I can feed, and the more I fed it, the more the, the more results reflected that. So over time, um, I started putting out releases, and um, it just started to kind of grow from there. And I guess today I have a, you know, a small, 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 small following. It's not like, you know, Beatlemania. It's not like Paul McCartney. People aren't chasing me down the street or anything like that. But you know, um, I, I have you know received really positive um, feedback from from what I've done, and um, you know, it's uh, it just kind of grew from there. And then I have that, and I also have a, another music project that I'm in with a, a chap named um, William Wolfgang Allen called Egret Zero. So um, you know, it just it, as as I entered my my what should be a midlife crisis. <laughs> I thought that like, well, you know, as they go, this is a, it's a fairly benign one to have. <laughs> so. <laughs> so it sounds like you've uh, got a pretty large audience and growing uh, 
What kind of audience are you finding? Do you find it's a younger audience or an older audience? Do you find they have something in common with you? Or are you reaching out to sort of, you know, a group outside your own? Just curious. I'm always curious with musicians how, you know, how that works. That's a great question. Um, uh, To be honest, um, I'm I'm happy that anybody listens to it at all. So, um, but early on, um, because a lot of what I was doing was very sort of sort of ambient, um, sort of sort of like tone based explorations, and I was receiving emails from people, um, you know, like like one one woman from from uh, Mumbai um, uh, had said like, you know, I'm a lifelong lifelong migraine sufferer, and I listen to this when I'm having an episode, and it seems to be the only thing that really works for me. And I thought, oh gosh, thank you. um, I had people who said I, I've suffered from PTSD my entire life, and this actually calms me down. Um, a woman from Australia um, wanted to use it in a, in a documentary film that she was putting together. Uh, a, a film student from Hong Kong wanted to wanted to use something, and so you know it comes from these really strange, sort of un, un, unpredicted places, I guess. Um, but I'm always happy to say, yeah, do whatever you like. It's it's fine. Um, first, I, I vet them, make sure they're authentic and not just trying to sell me Bitcoin or something. But it's, um, <laughs> but but yeah. So I guess like from an audience perspective, I'm just happy that people find any value. And um, I did get involved with um, uh, uh, Mark Mark Weidenbaum has a, a, a collective called Disquiet Junto, and um, and uh, what they do is like a, it's like a weekly assignment that they give out to people with no expectation that you have to fulfill it. And I started participating in that. Um, and I got exposed to a lot of really, really interesting and talented composers who just were just punching out really amazing stuff. Um, and, you know, that kind of created a, a somewhat of an insular audience as well. And also like colleagues, like not so much an audience, but like colleagues. And we were all kind of learning from each other and mostly me learning from them. And, and I guess somewhere along the way, I, I, I like to think that's where I kind of leveled up a little bit because, um, you know, if if I was just making you know 25 minute drones, that's one thing. But when I'm time stamped to four minutes, you know, then I had to start making decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what any creative output. That's what a composer does is you have to make decisions. And any design is about you know deciding to do something versus something else. Yeah, and I I think um, having some exposure to this um, genre and it's really a broad genre of not just uh, what you would call music, but it's it's sound art in a lot of ways. And um, a lot of times it's, you know, you're learning new techniques or you're trying to apply techniques. And also it can be a lot of problem solving. So it's like you have this sound that you want to achieve or you have this uh, technique that you want to use, but you have to find, you know, within your own practice, you you find a way to apply it so that it's it's something that you want to listen to and then maybe somebody else wants to listen to it. It is a lot of colleagues sharing with colleagues and it's a kind of a niche style. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, there's always that, that sort of, you listen with two ears. Um, there's, you listen to what you like and what you enjoy, but you also listen um, with this of like, well, how'd they do that? And how yeah. do I figure that out? And it's almost like a, a deconstructing, it's like any art, you know, you go in, um, sort of like appreciating the, the skill that what's there and the sentiments being conveyed, but there's also an element of like, well, how'd they do that? How'd they put that together? And, and um, that's sort of the, the intersection of science and art that I was talking about earlier, because, you know, I, I, I guess the way I'd put it, if you forgive the flowery languages, um, you never stop being a poet, but there's a point where you're always a technician. And I think that these things are important. And I think mm-hmm. that to operate in balance a little bit. And I think that's what attracts 
people to become makers at all. It's that 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 yearning to want to understand how something works and understand, um, you know, how things go together. Um, maybe a gap to be closed, but also an understanding of of why we were put here, and that's what the humanities is all about. Is is you know trying to making sense of what it means to be human and living on the planet. So. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, way before you picked music, you were, so you have an art school background and some science and technology and other things like that. How did all of that feature into you ultimately picking the genre that you picked? Oh, wow. Um, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I, I think it was actually 30 years ago this week, I graduated with a degree in photography and I was probably the strangest photography um, artist ever because I didn't really use a camera. And I was al I've always been interested in um, how broken technology, the aesthetic potential of, of broken technology. So, um, uh, and when the digital wave started to happen, say in the mid nineties, I started getting interested in, um, like for example, I, I had uh, rescued a, a a digital film recorder from a, from a dumpster someplace and, you know, trying to find like, what can we do with this? You know, could we output something interesting from this? And I had like, you know, just putting out these like scan lines and things like that. And, but I, I thought they were really beautiful and in, in a minimal sort of way, it reminded me of a, almost like an Agnes Martin painting or Barnett Newman or something like that. So um, I got into software along the way. Um, again, that, that whole, like, could I do this? Um, I wrote a mathematical algorithm at one point about, um, that it, it could take a graphic object like a JPEG and they can turn it a certain number of, of concentric circles. And so I thought, well, what if I took a classic album cover like, I don't know, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd and I input these numbers like based upon what year it came out and um, yeah, the, 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 the highest chart position and that would give me a design and I could do something with that maybe, you know, and that, and that got kind of interesting. And I think where we landed on, um, on sound, um, it just felt like a much more immediate way to um, explore that DIY aesthetic that I was that I was interested in. I think um, sound is the first of the five senses that we really experience. Um, you know, from when we're in our mother's womb, we actually feel the heartbeat through through the womb, um, and there's just something about sound that felt very immediate and and. Uh, I want to say visceral. It's probably not the right word. It just it it felt like the a natural extension of what I've been exploring previously. Very cool. So, and how did that transfer into deciding to make unconventional instruments instead of just using what was out there? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, so again, that was kind of a a slow burn uh, <laughs> in, in some ways. Um, it really started in I'd say twenty early, probably like the early 2010s, the decades, I was doing a lot of research on this book that I was, um, re that ultimately got published. And um, the book was all about um, the historical significance of the disability sector on design innovation. And um, what I found really um, inspiring by, by that research was um, how people with disabilities or those who look after them were manufacturing their own tools in order to better acclimate themselves to the world around them. Um, particularly a world that wasn't accommodating for their existence in many ways. Um, and uh, I, I, it, it ranged from 
say, um, you know, parents who were, you know, buying 3D printers, you know, they had a child who was born without a hand. And so they would manufacture a, a hand with a 3D printer um, based upon CAD drawings that they would download from the internet. Um, and, and, and like those stories are like, wow, like, like people are just deciding to do this. That's so cool in, in a lot of ways. Um, I had, um, you know, right here in Philadelphia, you know, Inglis has a very, very strong adaptive technology um, uh, department um, where they, you know, design and build and test prototypes literally every day, you know, on, on, you know, residents who, who live there. So, I mean, all these stories were kind of like building up and, and I'm answering your question at some point here. So, hey, you're so, good. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so somewhere along the way, I was kind of thinking like, well, I'm not really big on using like um, synthesized instruments as much, you know, I mean, cause not because um I'm not like snobby about it or anything. I just kind of felt like I wanted to find something that was very uniquely what I could do. You know, what, you know, could I have something here that no one else has done, even if it's terrible, at least, at least it's mine. It's unique, you know? Um, and this um, class came out taught by Kirk Pearson, who runs a, um, uh, uh, a collective in the, the Bay area, San Francisco called um, Dogbotic. And um, through Thingamajigs, they were, putting out this class on how to build your own synthesizer and basically, you know, the basics of, you know, how to build an oscillator and how, how VCOs work and how vol voltage works and, you know, VCFs and things like that. And I thought, all right, yeah, it's, it seems like a fun thing to do during a pandemic. Cause you know, what else what I was like, what's that, what were we going to do? So um, that just kind of opened up a whole field of new things like, Oh, this isn't so hard. You know, things I'd always wanted to do, like, um, you know, we could take like non-musical inputs like temperature, you know, and light and, you know, haptic touch and, and pressure and wind velocity, you know, and, um, you know, you know, solder perhaps rudimentary, but really interesting and, and, and unique ways of, of generating that into sound. And maybe we could do something with it. And even if what we make is, is horrible, which a lot of what I do, <laughs> I do is, but, you know, but, you know, maybe one out of 10 of those might be something really interesting. And if nothing else, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a new skill to add. Um, another arrow to the quiver, let's put it that way. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was um, looking at your website and in, in the way that you talk about your work and also the way that you write about your work, I'm very impressed with the vocabulary. I, I came across a word I had to look up uh crepuscular so uh, the <laughs> description you. of your website is post-classical ambient minimalism i was with you up to that point uh for crepuscular airports yeah so uh crepuscular is of relating to or resembling twilight um, correct yes which, uh, <laughs> occurring or active during twilight crepuscular i'm using it in a sentence now crepuscular yeah. insects <laughs> crepuscular activity uh, <laughs> birds are doing this as well at that time so thank you for teaching me a new word um, you're welcome you're welcome but, you know i i find it very i know in my own work and, and sometimes when i look at the work of others I, it's it's very difficult to write about music uh, because you're writing about something that's kind of ephemeral to begin with and there are so many tropes that have already been used and um I guess I was going to ask the one of the dreaded questions of, uh, you know, you do describe it here, post-classical ambient minimalism for crepuscular airports. But tell us more about that and, and um, if you how your music is going. Is it going in a specific direction or is it going in multiple directions right now? No. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for, for looking at that. Um, um, in terms of that specific word, um, 
that's from real life experience. I used to do a lot of traveling, um, you know, pre-pandemic, and I used to spend a lot early morning hours in airports, <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, you know, because I was a big fan of early morning flights, um, you know, because a lot of times I would do work on the West Coast and you, know, you can leave Philly International Airport at 6 a.m. and, you know, basically arrive there at, you know, you know beginning the business day local time. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I had some experience with that and I had thought about like, well, what do I want to be listening to when I'm sitting in an airport waiting to board, you, you know, so that, that came from a real experience. But I mm-hmm. think your question is more about like how, how does the storytelling aspect come into the music making mm-hmm. and does that kind of move into a certain direction? And um, I'm reminded of a quote by Elvis Costello, I believe, who once said that writing about music is like dancing to architecture. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but in a way, I don't think they're that dissimilar because, you know, music is all about storytelling in its own way. Um, uh, it, it's, it's not just decorating time with sound. I mean, there's, there's a story to that. And um I also um, I play African drums. I play djembe, and I and I took African drum classes for a while. And um, and, and first of all, the thing about African music is that um, there's a lot of different kinds of it because Africa as a continent is enormous, mm-hmm. and there are hundreds of countries and thousands of different microcultures all around. And you go north to south, east to west, and you'll run into every possible nuance of culture that you know. Here in the Western world, we think of Africa as being about the size of Wisconsin, and we kind of generalize it. But it's 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 very very multi, it's very rich mm-hmm. and multi-genre. And um, for example, um, one of my favorite rhythms that I played is cuckoo, um, which is um, based off the Ivory Coast. And there, you know, the, the 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 rhythm pattern is based upon the dance, and the dance is based upon the movement of people who are fishing. Like they throw a net out into the water and they pull it back, and there's it's a very like very expressive movement and the dance re- reflects that movement and then the rhythm reflects the dance. Mm-hmm. So that's all storytelling. Um, and I'm, I'm about to answer your other question. So <laughs> bear, bear with me, but, but, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's a storytelling aspect to that. And so like understanding the richness of that. So, you know, writing about um, kind of a, a certain piece and, and what inspired that, um, you, you know, is, I, I think is a very important part of at least what I do. And I've had, folks tell me um, that like, listen, that they actually enjoy reading it as much as they like listening to it in some cases, probably more. So um, I almost think sometimes I should just stop making music and just like, just write about the music that, that they would hear if they wanted to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But in terms of where it goes from here, I'm, I, I can't say I've intentionally moved in a certain direction, but I have been, it's almost like, I think any, anyone who works in art, 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 artistic field is you're almost always reacting to what you've just done right I I know I do this Mm so um, I had definitely made an effort to um, use more of my own instrumentation into things I was doing so that was definitely a because I for no other reasons I was building them they were taking up space in my studio so might as well use them Um, but also maybe getting away from these sort of long sort of ambient droney you know, post-classical minimalism, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, airport thing, and maybe get into like, you know, shorter, um, you know, more concise statements, um, a little bit more space, maybe a little bit more minimal, like not trying to load everything up with like, you know, the cast of Ben-Hur with like, in the kitchen sink and all that stuff, but more like, um, you know, let some space breathe a little bit. And some of the more recent things I think I've done have, have been an effort to do that, um, mm. you know, and, and, you know, I may go back to something else in the future, but that 
that felt more natural. And also because I think it's harder to write that way. It's, it's, it's more challenging because as I said before, um, I have to make decisions and mm-hmm. it's sometimes it's hard to make decisions. It's easier just to layer things up electronically. Like, Oh, we're just going to add this. We're going to add this. We're going to add this. And then you get this like rich harmonic, like oh, happening. And, and it's wonderful. You can just kind of walk away and it just plays by itself for you know half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, when you say like, no, this is going to be no more than two minutes and it's going to only involve these two instruments. It's going to be piano and this kind of this uh, fake violin sound. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I like those kinds of challenges. I think it, it, it helps to stretch the brain a little bit. And um, I think it's important to impose limitations because otherwise um, it's like free form. I think Igor Stravinsky said something like that once where he wrote, um, you know, I, I hear all the sounds in the world and I just get overwhelmed by even how to begin. I can't even get started. But then I realize I'm limited to, you know, these keys on the piano. I'm limited to these notes in the scale and then I can get to work. I, you know, I establish constraint and I can work within that. And mm-hmm. that's where I find the, you know, it, things become much more sublime that way. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm comparing myself to Stravinsky at all, but I, but I get what he's saying. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, I, I totally hear you on the, there's so many different layers to music and uh, definitely the Ivory Coast example you gave. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so great because I remember like several dancers, you know, being from that area too. I think about the way they dance and it's not just the dance, it's like you're thinking about an action or some kind of lifestyle and because that's what they're kind of weaving into the dance moves. So yeah, I'm with you with that. But then as you're talking, I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, you must be, have been doing this for a long time. Like how, <laughs> how and when does this whole thing start? Like it's, it's, it feels like you've, you've kind of been looking for problems, solving problems, putting, you know, kind of uh, your different um, um, skills into problem solving. So can you tell us more about how that all came together and how long have you been kind of like in this mode of discovery and creation? Oh gosh. Um... Well, thank you. That's a flattering question. Thank you, number one. Um, I, 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 I just always had that kind of curiosity, and I think that it attracts people to this space, you know. And I think that um, uh, pretty much everybody that I know who does some version of what we do here, um, you know, I, I, I collaborate with an artist named um, um, B.G. Madden, um, Burn, I call him, and we talk about this a lot, which is, you know, we we all have our corporate jobs in, ver- in various forms, you know, but there's always that part of the, of, of, of the soul that wants to yearn, wants to understand things, wants to, you know, find out things. And even if it's just like, Hey, let's see if we could do this, you know, let's, <laughs> you know, let's see if this works. Let's plug this into this and pl- you know, put a battery in it and see if something happens here. Right. Um, I, I think it attracts those kinds of folks who have that sort of intellectual curiosity about the world around them. Um, I know that when I've been positioned to hire people in various job situations, I look for people like that who know how to tell a good story and have, you know, evidence of, of, of character. And um, one of the questions I ask is, you know, tell me about something that didn't work once and how you dealt with it, because I think that's, that's, you know, you know, I love failure stories because it teaches you something about tenacity. It teaches about character. Um, and I think that, you know, the way we get through those times and they're inevitable by the way, cause I mean, I'd say, you know, four out of five things I do in a given time don't work at all. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but it's also about like, what do we learn from that? What do we take from that? And, you know, okay, well that doesn't work. Um, 
you know, as, um, you know, before we got on this podcast here, we were talking about um, cutting plexiglass and all the things that can go wrong when you cut plexiglass. And um, I think just in the last two weeks, I've done all of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you, you try, a, a, you know, I have a fine tooth blade, a rough blade. I use, um, you know, more torque in the drill, less torque. You know, I just, um, you just try things and you learn things and you find like, okay, well, that actually works. Um, um, and, and certainly with, when it comes to electronic DIY, you know, instrument or anything involving electronics, all kinds of things can go wrong at any given time from the soldering to the housing to just the, um, you know, and I, heck, I mean, last weekend I had an LED light that just, just kept burning out because for some reason the resistance I had on it just wasn't, it wasn't um, enough, um, but it was working with everything else. And so what do you do? You either struggle with it or you say, well, not going to have a light, <laughs> you know, you know and, we'll and we'll figure it out later, you know? Um, so I think, I think those kinds of, um, yeah, I, I think that that's, it's an important part of the making process is understanding sort of, you know, which battles we're willing to fight through and which ones we're willing to relinquish. And I think that in itself is, is a creative decision that gets made on behalf of the maker. I, I, I think that's an important part of it. I don't think any artistic endeavor is about understanding, you know, when we've, kind of when we've hit our, our, our ceiling of what we know. And sometimes it's just a matter of like, you know, maybe I need a little bit more information to, to go by here. Maybe I need to, you know, kind of ask someone who knows more than I do. Um, maybe I should you know, deign to look at a YouTube video of someone who has actually done this before mm -hmm. rather than <laughs> before I burned down my house here. So. <laughs> so Such a maker mentality. It's like somehow you failed because you have to go like look at a YouTube video. <laughs> No, but, but but you know that's where you really get the best um and and thank god that we have this resource available because we can you, you can just find someone I, it's almost like i mean the internet has wrought about a lot of somewhat undesirable things you know perhaps in some ways um but it's also enabled this richness where it's it's like going it's like having a library all the time and you you will almost always run into somebody who's done something kind of close to what you've done, run into the same problem and maybe solved it. And maybe that solution doesn't necessarily 100% pertain to what you're doing, but at least get you pushed enough in the right direction and maybe re kind of reframe the problem enough that you say, okay, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm fixing the wrong part of this. You know, maybe I need to be putting my attention over here as well. So. Yeah. And maybe, you know, you might spend 10 minutes watching somebody else's video, but at the end of the day, if you still learn something, and that saves you an entire weekend of spinning your wheels so that you can actually get on and continue creating and making something work. It's definitely worth it. Uh, I've, I've been there. I've been there um, too. Yeah, my, yeah, absolutely. My other musical partner, Wolfgang, we talk about this constantly, just this idea of like, okay, well, I don't know if it's working. Okay, well, what's not working for you? Well, like maybe, maybe try this, maybe try this. And it's, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's 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 a very it, it, it's really nice to be able to bounce those ideas off somebody. I think the the collaborative aspect of making is is one that I find really really rewarding. And again, especially in in the pandemic era that we're living in right now, because we don't have a lot of the social interaction, so it does give us an automatic vehicle by which we can interact with our people and and learn some things. Um, and and I mean, really, I mean, if it wasn't for that, none of us would be talking right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so. So you've mentioned a couple makers that uh, you've worked with and, you know, some musicians over the years that, you know, things they've said have, you know, resonated with you. But beyond that, what other makers inspire you, whether they're musicians or, you know, outside of musicians, just, you know, when you think 
oh, wow, that really, that really made me think that really inspired me to go forward. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that when I was doing research um, in the disability sector, I mean, I got really inspired when I went to Toronto, um, Bloorview Holland Rehabilitation Hospital, um, which was really, really fascinating. I mean, they have an entire floor dedicated to just the making of prototypes for kids who are in the hospital with, um, you know, uh, pulmonary, you know, problems, um, uh, speech therapy devices, I saw um, really interesting things they were doing with the connect at the and, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, but it was like 2012, I think I, I went there 2011. Um, they were doing really interesting things with connect in terms of um, mobility therapies, um, cognitive therapies, a lot of really interesting things there. And um, I just the whole visit was just really an eye opener for me in a lot of ways. I just thought that was really, really cool that they were doing this. Um, I mentioned Inglis right here in Philadelphia. Um, their adaptive technology lab is absolutely first rate. Um, and what's really great isn't so much that they're making cool stuff. They're making cool stuff that they can go test right away and see how it works and they can learn from it. I mean, the iterative process almost takes place within hours, not weeks or months or days or years. And, um, you know, it doesn't require multiple rounds of seed funding. They just, they just, they find someone who, you know, wants to do something a little bit better, wants to be able to maybe, you know, read a book a little bit, <laughs> turn pages a little bit more effectively, things like that. Um, you know, um, I, uh, in terms of like more closer to the art world, um, folks like Walter Catundo, who um, makes some um, kind of handmade turntables, among other things, and does a lot of like installations. Um, you know, again, not that, not that I look at that and think, oh, I want to make those, because um, I don't, don't think I could. Um, but also, you know, he brings a kind of a almost a spirituality to what he builds. And, you know, it's it's you know he really tries to understand the the environment in which something's going to reside, um, and tries to bring a, a kind of um, a historical or a social or cultural context to it, which is is, is kind of nice. Um, I mentioned Kirk Pearson at Dogbotic. Um, uh, yeah, just folks like that. I mean, I, but also um, I find inspiration just from. You're going to think I'm making a joke here, but I'm really not. But just, just kind of looking at how things are put together. I mean, I had one grandfather who was a radio pioneer, you know, back in the in the you know, 30s. I had another grandfather who was an architect, and so I guess that kind of put some you know DNA in me. Where like I've always had to sort of, you know, I I, you know, I come into a building, you know, for for a meeting or something, and um and and you know I start looking around I say well how'd they put that together how'd they put that together you, you know like I wonder how you know, that shouldn't go to go why is the glass so <laughs> why is there so much glass over there how's that staying up you, things like that you know and and um I find that kind of inspiring as well um and I'm always inspired by um a, a very positive sense of envy when I see people who do things really really well uh, <laughs> you know and there's no shortage of those uh, especially the disquiet community um um, Kirk Pearson um, does some really amazing work. Um, uh, folks like that, it just. Um, but also, um, you know, I'll, I'll go uh, another step. Uh, I think many years ago, I saw Ruchi Sakamoto um, in concert, um, just by himself, and he was brilliant. I mean, that was a brilliant performance. And um, speaking, of, I mean, talk about minimal. <laughs> I mean, it was it was definitely that. Um, and it was just him and two pianos. And somehow he had the second piano playing while he was on the other one. And, um, and I spent, you know, kind of half the concert just like, just enthralled by the sounds and the other half wondering like, how the hell is that happening? <laughs> you know, because he was clearly playing, you know, you know, counterpoint between the two pianos. And I just thought, Oh my gosh. So, you know, things like that start to, you know, they get the, the neurons moving a little bit and we want to see like, okay, I, like 
wonder, is there a way we could do that as well? So. So we've heard a lot about your music. We've heard a little bit about other things you do, your interest in, um, you know, the disability space. And I know that there's a whole lot more that's going on in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Wondering if you would elaborate on other things you work on and, you know, also the book that you wrote. I'm curious to hear about that too. Oh, well, that was, if I can remember, that was a long time. <laughs> so, uh, the book was called, uh, it is called, it's still out, it's called Digital Outcasts. Um, it was published by Morgan Kaufman in 2013. Um, and I've been told it still holds up. I tried to future proof it as well as I could. Um, and and uh, um, yeah, um, that was that was a big focus for a while. Um, somewhere in there, you know, some years ago, I also worked in um, the, the food security space um, where uh, we were looking at ways we could um, uh, increase access to um, healthy locally grown vegetables in low economic communities, what commonly called food deserts in North America. So we had launched a few pilots in, in one in Baltimore, one in New Orleans and elsewhere in North America. So did some work in that space. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work in healthcare. Um, I guess in a previous life, um, actually worked on a medical device um, that today has been approved by the FDA. Um, and actually, you know, I never really thought of that lineage until you just asked that question. Um, but I remember that was kind of the same idea. We had uh, Arduino sensors um, that measured the velocity of air going running across it. And so we were able to utilize that into a kind of a, a, a game-based program um, for people who um, had uh, pulmonary difficulties. So um, that was a device that we had put together. So um, so I've worked on a lot of these kind of interesting spaces. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't run around looking for, you know, things to do. But, I, but one thing I do, I'm always attracted to, um, you know, a problem that needs to be solved, but especially if there's some kind of like, you know, social or cultural relevance to it, I'm, I'm always going to be attracted to that. So exciting i feel like we need another hour now <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh. you know it, it's funny I, I, when i was talking about um the african drumming earlier uh it, we're, it, the basic the basis of time and i never really thought about this and again this is kind of speaks to the the the, the understanding the context of where things live I, we talked about the dances and the rhythms and the patterns um but we were studying um patterns um by uh, the djembe player um, Baba Tunde Alatunje. And um, the idea of Western music is really much based upon like, like a beat, like a time stamp. It's like there's a downbeat, there's an offbeat, there's on the beat, off the beat, like boom, 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 boom. And we, we think of it in terms of beats. And, um, and in Alatunje's music, there's no real sense of like a beat. It's like everything is a beat. You know, there's like these moments in time that gets assigned a sound. And then you kind of put two or three sounds together and you make a pattern and you have two or three sounds over here, they make a pattern and maybe they overlap and you make a composite pattern. And then, you know, that's, that's like the whole basis of how they think about the life experience is very different. So um, I, I've taken a lot of, or I've tried to take, I, I, or I pretend to take a lot of influence from, from that thinking because um, it's just a, a totally different way of, of looking at the world than maybe what we do you know, here in, in the U S for example. Um, so I guess my point there, if I have one, <laughs> is, is that, you know, th there's all this richness out there. And um, a, a lot of what we talk about has been about the lineage from one thing to another. But I, as I look back, I kind of think like, well, the lineage is there, but it's basically been the same pattern of, of investigation 
um, it just finds different vehicles. And I think a lot of makers you talk to will, will have that same experience. You know, they'll think like, well, I've always been someone who wanted to go find out how things worked. It's just now today I do this and I once did this. And when I was five years old, I played with Legos and now I'm doing this type of thing. So I think those, I think that that sentiment is very common. I guess this is my point. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's not from one thing to the next and linear. It's just like things happen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Blame it yes. on the Legos. <laughs> <laughs> I know, doesn't it always get back to Legos? Comes back to Legos. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's, it, it's, a, it's a spirit of play. It's a spirit of inventiveness. And, and it's a shame that, you know, I have a five-year-old niece and you definitely see that with her. Um, and I just see, I mean, she's wildly inventive and, um, in, in my own way, I hope that I can inspire her to you know, cultivate that for as long as she feels like it's valuable to her. Because um, it does, it, if we're not careful, it can get beaten out of us. You know, life will do that sometimes. And it's just, that's a natural part of getting older. And, um, you know, what's really encouraging is just, just talking to all of you and seeing that that spirit is very much alive. And I can tell that in our conversation here. And I'm sure it's the case that other folks you talk to. So, What's a boring fact about yourself? Oh, boring? Oh, God. Jeez. I... <laughs> there are so many. Um, a boring fact about me. Um, uh, boring fact. Uh, I don't know. I'm a pretty boring guy. Uh, <laughs> help, help me narrow it down. <laughs> give me a subcategory. We can, we, can run, we can run over a little bit. Give me, give me a subcategory. <laughs> something just in your day-to-day -day life that you think is just the most mundane thing that you do um i am um almost religious about feeding the birds and on our property i i and in fact um i especially this time of year um in this in the late spring when um because we have a lot of birds in the property and if i miss a day feeding them they'll congregate in the places where they think the food should be. Cause we have a couple bird houses out there and they'll sit there waiting for me. And, uh, and I think they're talking about me. I'm pretty sure they're like, where, where where's the guy at? You know, like, where's, 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 where's the man with the food? Like something is amiss. And, um, and, and, and I've, you know, here in my office, I, I have two windows right here and there's like a little roof out here. And sometimes like the birds will kind of walk right up and just look inside the window at me working here. And I'm pretty sure they're sort of like giving me a little hint, like, like, yo, we, <laughs> you're, you're, you're shirking your responsibilities here. You might want to, might want to take care of that. So um, that's something I do pretty regularly. I, I, I like to go out and feed the birds and, and, um, and something very boring that I also do regularly is I, I like to go out and kind of water the, the you know, the, 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 just by hand with a hose. I just kind of water things. It's sort of a, that, you know, I do that. I do that very much in the evening as well. That's a crepuscular uh, activity I do. <laughs> so, 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 but um, but you, but uh, you know, just sort of uh, that kind of stuff. And as I get older, I just find activities like that are nice. You know, it's it's okay. You know, I, I I'm finding that I don't. I'm not like in my twenties where I had to be like constantly like um, inundated with um, <laughs> stimuli. <laughs> you know, you can find your own stimuli sometimes. So I guess that's pretty boring, but I like it. <laughs> Awesome. Laura, thanks for reminding me we have a hard stop at 11. Um, Kel, how can people learn more about you? Website uh, or a place to go? Yeah, uh, 
I, um, if they want to read about sus music, it's at susmusic.com, S U S S M U S I K. I spelled it that way because I'm difficult. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I, there's a website, kelsmith.com, um, and that's perfectly fine. And if they want to learn about some of my professional service, um, that's at anikto.com, um, A N I K T O. Um, if they're interested in some of the devices that I build, um, I do have a YouTube channel. Um, uh, it's uh, just the sus music, you know, DIY, DIY synth and other machines or whatever I called it. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, same thing, sus music. So all these items are up there and you can look at them and laugh, <laughs> you know, or, 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 or shake your head or whatever. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, it's all findable. So <laughs> is there anything else you want to add for us? No, I, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. I've had a great time and um, I think what you're doing is terrific. And um, uh, it's just always, it's always a thrill to be exposed to more people who are just amazingly gifted and talented. And I, and I don't say that lightly. I, I really mean that. And um, I applaud anyone who is um, continuing to, you know, feed that inner muse, that inner yearning to understand how things work and to turn that into like really interesting um, creative output. And I'm just, it's just a privilege to be a part of that community. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Philly Maker Fair podcast. We're streaming on all platforms, so join us each week. Learn more about today's Maker Fair at phillymakerfair.com. We're social, so keep in touch. You can find us on Twitter as PHLMake. Also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest as Philly Maker Fair, all one word. See you, See you next, next week. week.